Well, join me in a prayer of thanksgiving this morning. 14 years, Solano Community Church. Let's uh, give honor where honors due. And I can never pray into this fully enough, but let me just pray what I can. Um, Lord, we know that um, so much of what happens in a church is beyond our seeing and grasping and comprehending even. There are things going on in the spiritual realm that are greater and grander than our small minds can begin to perceive. There are private ministries going on between people that we don't even know about that happen day after day, week after week, year after year in our home groups and in our emails back and forth, in our texts to encourage one another, in our promises to pray for one another. Over and over again, you uh, demonstrate your faithfulness in and through this community in ways that we can hardly imagine or comprehend or collect 2004, at the very end, we were about to launch this church with a a committed core group of about 25 or 30 people, and right in that moment, you decided uh, to to have the community center go through a renovation project, and so we had to delay just as we were about to start. It was an obstacle, the first of many that you would carry us through. That small group of Faithful people gathered and prayed and served and sacrificed and gave and loved. And right there on the first day of worship, we had people come to faith in Jesus Christ. We celebrated that you were on the move in Albany and Berkeley and beyond. 2006, we almost didn't make it limping along um, we'd grown a little bit, but not enough to really be sustainable, and, 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 and I was burnt out, and we, we, we almost gave it up, and you held us together in that moment and sustained us. 2007, we lost our worship leader, and, our, and we had no children's ministry director, and my wife stepped in and carried both roles to the point of completely breaking down her health. You carried your church. 2008, we found ourselves in a big financial hole like everybody did. We wondered what was going to happen next. And on one Sunday, you provided enough to get us out of the hole and double it. You showed your faithfulness again and again. And the stories go on and on. Our our outgrowing the community center and moving to Ocean View started planning that in 2010, happened in 2011. 2011, when a single father of three in our community suddenly died in a swimming accident and we had three children to care for. And you gave us the strength. 2012, we... We saw the potential of reaching more broadly, adding more staff, and so we started this this thing called the Cedars Project, and you provided the resources for this church to grow and to grow into what we hoped would be that sort of, that cedar, that strong tree planted in this place that could be available to those who would be seeking shade under its coverage. We brought on a church plant, resident, we sent him out, we struggled, we prayed for San Francisco, and it was hard, and we were surprised when it didn't go the way we wanted it to go. 
but you were faithful in the midst of it. We started in the next year, 2015-14, our Avada ministry to help people integrate their faith and their work. And we saw so many lives touched with that as people began to think a little bit more carefully about what does it mean to be a Christian and a businessman or a Christian and an engineer or whatever it is that we do. We said a hard farewell to our assistant pastor, Andrew Franklin, in 2016. In 2017, we said a hearty hello to Pastor Dante. 2018, we merged with another church, and we had a sabbatical. In the midst of that, Pastor Dante became ill, and you sustained this church throughout all of that. So today, we have so many reasons to say thank you. And it's only right and good and true that we declare our thanksgiving this morning. It's what is honoring to you. It's what is accurate in the telling of history. And I only want to add this morning, Lord, all those things that we didn't see that you did. All those ways that you covered us, you were our stronghold, you you, you, you supported us, you nurtured us and nourished us. For all of it, we give you praise and glory this morning. And we say thank you. Thank you that you are a living God and that you are moving in the midst of your church. And we would invite you to continue to move. Continue to draw us close to yourself. Continue to knit us together in fellowship. Continue to do signs and and wonders in our midst that would underscore the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. This is our prayer on our 14th anniversary, and we, we offer it in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, an anniversary is a time of celebrating, making it to the next, whatever it is, right? And in this case, it's making it to the next year. And we we celebrate because we know there are so many things that can get in the way of making it to the next, right? It's not something we take for granted that we'll make it to the next. We, We can't even take it for granted in our own lives that we'll make it to the next year. And the complexity of a church the community gathered together, all the different kinds of people and, and the baggage that we all bring and the history that we all bring is, is, is magnified. And there's so much potential for challenge and struggle. And the fact that we make it from one year to the next is only because of the grace of God. And so it's fitting to stop at an anniversary and say thank you to God. And it's also fitting to ask the question, Why is it, God, that you are sustaining us? What is your purpose for us? And I find there's no other way really to understand the purpose of a church than what we're doing in our study of the book of Acts, to dig deep into the early church and what made the early church tick. What caused them to get up in the morning and do what they did? What was their purpose? What was their goal? And thankfully, this morning on our anniversary, we've been given a passage that answers that very 
question. So would you open up to Acts chapter 4, verse 13. If you need a Bible today, just raise your hand and we'll give one to you. Please don't be shy about that. Really love for you to be able to follow along and see the writing in the scripture. Um, It's on page uh, 630 in that white Bible that we give out. And then the one that's all blue is on page 532. Acts chapter 4, verse 13. Now, a little bit of context while you're turning towards that. There's been a healing take place with the disciples, and a crowd gathered, and one of the disciples started preaching, saying why the healing took place, and he's he's saying that it's pointing to the power of Jesus Christ to heal in the physical sense, but also in the spiritual sense, which is much grander and greater even, to heal us from the sickness of sin. And so Peter preaches that, and a bunch of people believe, and the church goes from 3,000 to 5,000 and families, and, and then now, because of all the commotion that's happening there in the temple area, the leaders are getting involved, the, the religious leaders, and so they've come near, and they actually have arrested the disciples because they're nervous about all these people following them. They're nervous about what they're teaching. They're nervous about the commotion that they're creating. And they want to control the situation. And so they pull them in to arrest them. And they have a little bit of an exchange. And then they send the disciples out and they're deliberating, the religious leaders, the the Sadducees, the religious leaders in the temple, the high priest. They're deliberating. And that's where we pick up the story here in verse 13 says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. When they had commanded them to leave the council, so they sent them out, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. When they were released... That's the disciples. They went to their friends (laughs) and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, meaning Christ. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, 
both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Now, I can't think of a better way to reflect on our 14th anniversary and the next 14 years than the last verse there. They continued to speak the word of God with boldness, right? Continue your witness with boldness. That's the theme for this morning. I want to talk about this in two moves. First of all, I want to talk about our job and then God's job. Our job and then God's job. Those are the two pieces that we're going to look at. Now, you need to understand the disciples were sent, right? They were sent to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ, that in him is healing from sin, that in him, the one who died and rose again, is good news for all eternity. They were sent to go and declare that message. Now, many of you this morning are with us are, would consider yourself followers of Jesus Christ. And the question that sometimes comes to mind is, do we get to choose whether or not we're sent by God? What do you think? Do we get to choose whether or not we're sent to proclaim, to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Seems that at the very heart of God is this, this idea of sending, of going to where there is need, of, 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 of not turning away from where there is need, but going to it to bring healing. And if you are a disciple, I would argue that is part of your very identity as a disciple to be a sent one. You don't get to choose, in other words. Now, let me read a few scriptures. In John 17, 18, Jesus says these words. As you sent me, he's praying and he's talking to the Father. He says, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, meaning the disciples. In other words, part of what it means to be a disciple is to be sent. You can't pull those apart. You don't get to say, I'm going to follow Jesus, but then just keep it all to myself. The moment you say, I'm going to actually follow Jesus, you've been sent. Because that's what a disciple is. Somebody who's like Jesus. And Jesus was sent by the Father. Now, time out. Some of you this morning are probably visiting with us. Maybe you're seekers. You don't know where you stand with religious things, with Christian things. And let me just say this to you, that the essence of Christianity is wrapped around this concept of being sent. That God would send Jesus Christ into the world in love to bring healing and salvation to a broken world. We go to the most famous passage, John 3, 16, 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him this is at the very core 
of Christianity. This is the essence, this, this idea of God's sending heart, his loving heart, sending Jesus into the world to reach the lost, the hopeless, the hurting, the broken, the suffering, the sick. That was the mission of Jesus. And then Jesus, as he brings along the disciples and teaches them, he sends them. So it's part of the very fabric of our identity as disciples to view ourselves as sent ones, ones who are sent. You don't get to choose. You can be more or less conscious about it, but you don't get to choose. John 20, 21, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In fact, it's almost like Sometimes we don't even realize that we're sent and God is still working through us. In other words, the Holy Spirit living in us sometimes operates in ways that we're not even aware of. So we're sent even when we don't realize we're sent. I love this verse in 2 Corinthians 2.15. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. That idea that that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are the aroma of Christ. You don't get to choose. You just smell that way. That's how you smell. You can be more or less conscious of it. You can decide to live into it and go with it, or you can try and deny it, but you can't cover up the smell. You just can't. It's who you are. When I came to the Lord in Madrid, in Spain, in, in, in 91, I probably was coming back to the Lord. I had a childhood experience, but I was coming back. I came back to uh, University of California, or, uh, in Santa Barbara, and I was living with a bunch of guys, and I was the only now Christian there who was actually seeking the Lord and trying to live, and um, I just felt like such a disaster. My life was such a wreck. I mean, I would have looked at my life at that point and said, there is nothing Christian about my life. And then at the end of my year, one of the roommates comes up and says, man, I used to hate Christians. I thought they were all idiots. Then I met you. <laughs> and I'm like, what's he going to say next? Now I'm certain, right? No. He said, you know, just watching you and all this stuff, I had no idea. Do you realize that is you too? You feel like you're such a failure, like there's no way that you could testify to the glory and the goodness of Jesus Christ, that everything you do runs contrary to what you're supposed to be. And guess what? God is still making you smell like Jesus because the Holy Spirit is in you and the aroma is pervading from you, whether you know it or not. So you might as well cooperate with it, right? Which is what we're going to talk about here. Now, along the way, we encounter difficulty. Just like these disciples, they, uh, they get arrested and thrown in jail, which I would say is a difficulty. Uh, and so, they're, they're, you know, we may not in our place be thrown in jail or be arrested um, by the grace of God. Thank you for that. But we can feel trapped or in pain in all kinds of different ways. I've been sitting with uh, Katerina Zell recently, who was contemporary of Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., Martin Luther in the 1500s. And she was uh, a wonderful theologian, writer. She was one of the first people to marry a pastor, which was a very rebellious thing. That was what the Protestant Reformation was, was bringing, was 
these women would, mar- these pastors would get married. And so there she was in Strasbourg and her pastor husband died. And for 20 more years, she had this incredible ministry in the town of Strasbourg with all the Christian leaders there. And you can read her writings. And this is in the 1500s. She's writing to the pastor who has taken over the church that her husband used to pastor. And she's describing her life at this time. She says, now, however, the Lord has not only robbed me of my husband, and also she had lost two children, um, as my great help, but also after his death, he has sent me so many crosses and afflictions that almost all my strength is crushed. And in addition to all these, he has laid a great burden on my shoulders with my brother's son. Um, what we understand is probably he, this was a son who was handicapped, and she adopted him. And basically all of her money was consumed in taking care of this son and all of her time. Imagine in the 1500s taking care of somebody without the kinds of medical help and assistance that we have. Okay, So here's a woman who's bursting forth with with gospel, with good news, with teaching. And here she is. taking. She says, Oh, dear sir, if you knew or saw what business I have with my nephew day and night, you would be moved to pity for me and say it was a wonder that I could read a page or write a single letter of the alphabet. Indeed, that I could keep my census. But while I have borne such a cross, all friends in the whole city left me suspended and floundering. Those for whom I devoted the strength of my body and our substance day and night. So she had served in this city, this church, and as she was in a time of need, she was not seeing any of them come around to help her. This is in the 1500s, okay? This is not in the, in the, in the time of Jesus. If you look through the history of the church, you will see over and over again that the people of God suffer. They encounter difficulty. In fact, John 16, 33, I have said these things to you, Jesus says, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Other translations say, in the world you will have trouble. And that's what happens to the disciples. And that's what happens to people like Katerina Zell. And that's what happens to us. And how the disciples respond to it is hugely instructive. Look at what they do. They've, look with me in chapter, verses 23 and following. This is the, when they gather to pray. It says, first of all, they find friends and report what's happened. This is one of the key roles of the church is to be those friends. That's why you have home group that you go so that when, when you get trapped or in pain, you can report to them what has happened. And then they can pray with you. And that's what they do. They pray. So the disciples go, they tell their friends, and then the friends don't just nod and say, oh, sucks to be you. Uh, They say, let's pray. Let's go to the Lord. And so they, they bow their heads. We can do something. And how they pray is instructive. They remind themselves who God is. They start off saying, sovereign creator. You're good, and you're in control of everything. This, everything that's happening to us right now is not outside of your vision. It's not beyond your sight. And then they remind, they remind themselves of what God has revealed to them in Scripture. And what they, they quote is, is um, Psalm 2 here. And I'm going to come back to that in a little bit. But the, the psalm gives them a framework for understanding 
what's happening in this particular moment. So they quote Psalm 2. And then they remind themselves of the experience of Jesus. This is a good exercise. Whatever you're experiencing, think through the life of Jesus and how did he also experience it. And if you ever find something that you're experiencing that doesn't connect in some way to the life of Jesus, come and tell me, please. I have yet to see that. Somehow, he has experienced all the pain and the suffering that we have. And they remind themselves of Jesus' life, and they connect their lives to his life. They say, oh, this is what Jesus experienced, and so uh, it makes sense that we're experiencing it too. And then they ask at the end of this, after reminding themselves of God's sovereignty, of the scripture, and of Jesus' experience, they say, grant your servants. This blows my mind. Would you look with me in uh, verse uh, 29? And now, Lord, look upon their threats, the threats of the religious leaders, and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Is that how you pray? Can I ask? Because it's not how I pray too much of the time. That's not what I'm asking for. I'm saying, Lord, don't let that ever, ever happen to me again. Bust me out of this prison I'm sick of it. Don't let me suffer in the ways that I'm suffering right now. Take me back to Europe on sabbatical. (laughs) Right? On my bike in the Alps. That's how I pray too much of the time. What they say is, grant us. Just all we want is the ability to keep on proclaiming with boldness the good news. I have jail, whatever, you know, arrests, whatever. Just can you, can you make us not be afraid to proclaim the good news? <gasps> Boom, right? It blows your mind. And then you see um, in, in, uh, in, in verse Chapter 5, verse 40, just even more of this, if you turn over the page, chapter 5, verse 40. And when they had called in the apostles, this is so this is another event like this, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. We'll get to this, and then let them go. And this is what I want you to see, verse 41. Then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoice after having been beaten. Why? The thing about the early church that is sort of the key to understanding it is this incredible desire to be like Jesus that lies at the heart of their motivation. They want to be like Jesus. They counted a blessing that they were beaten. Why? Because that's what happened to Jesus. All these threats from the religious leaders, they go back and they say, oh yeah, that happened with Jesus. And then in the passage that we read, it talks about Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Gentiles and the people of Israel. All that happened to Jesus. Oh, must be good. Because we're seeming more like Jesus. What happened to Jesus is happening to us. There's this hunger to be like Christ. That's what it means to be Christian, right? When I was in the Prado, 
Um, in Madrid, the museum, there was a painting by Velasquez, and it was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And, you know, when you're in Europe and you're going to museums, you see nine billion crucifixions of Jesus Christ, right? But this one is the best one <laughs> because it is so beautiful and simple. And Velasquez is 1600s. He's not trying to make Jesus look all buffed out and muscular, uh, nor is he trying to make Jesus look all skinny and abnormal and He's just, it's a very simple, pure crucifixion. And I found it arresting, and I stood before it, and, and I asked myself as I'm standing there, is that my vision for life? Because I think that's what the Bible teaches, actually. That the willingness to continue to speak boldly to the, to the point at which I might end up in a similar circumstance that, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I have to confess that I am so much allured by other images. Right? What are the images that appeal to your mind? That you picture five years from now, are you striding across the stage, receiving your diploma? Actually, four years, but maybe five years. Um, and you have all kinds of tass extra tassels on there because of your successes. Or are you, you know, teaching in a classroom setting, now having a full professorship, you know, um, are you striding across the stage to receive a business award? You know, are you engaged in some wonderful physical endeavor? You know, there's you on your mountain bike jumping over a ravine. And you see the picture on Instagram of somebody else doing that. And you're like, that's me in the next little while. Or is it the image on Instagram of the beautiful woman and you are aspiring to be that, and it goes on and on and on. We are bombarded with images, and let me ask you, where does the image of a Jesus Christ hanging on the cross fit in all of that? Because as I'm reading the Bible, it should be at the very center. And if it's not, at some point, all those other images are going to cause you to run in conflict with it. I can't do this. I can't, in my own strength, settle my heart on that image as my image. Which is why we have the other part of this passage. What is God's job? What is he doing? While we're doing this, what is he doing? What is God doing? And this is the critical, it's, it's, it's all... It's all right here. God has laid out a plan. He's a sovereign creator who has revealed his plan in Scripture. So Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 2, uh, 1 through 6, is beautiful. In, uh, you know, a lot of times when the Psalms are quoted, they're not trying to just say the one verse that's being quoted. It gives a framework for uh, everything that's happening, the, the whole Psalm does. And so Psalm 2, 1 through 6, says this, and it's in reference to the threats 
against Jesus and now the disciples and the leadership that rages against them in their effort to be bold and to proclaim the good news. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, Jesus, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. But if you had the whole psalm, you would also hear this. He who sits in the heavens laughs. All those threats, all the, the coming against Jesus and the coming against the disciples, right? In the midst of all that, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. In his scriptures, God provides revelation of the plan that he's been sovereignly constructing and carrying out throughout the course of time. And that plan gives perspective to the disciples as they enter into jail, arrest, and whatever else it is that disciples enter into. But it's not only that. At the very end of the passage, the Holy Spirit gets poured out and the place is shaken and the people are refreshed. So they're made bold, not just by the knowledge of God's sovereign plan that's been revealed to them in Scripture, but also by the actual outpouring of the Holy Spirit in them. Lord, would you pour out your Spirit on this church to embolden us? There's nothing I can say to make you bold enough. But God, you can meet us. So they, the Holy Spirit's poured out, and, they're, and they're, they're shaken, and they're refreshed. And then they pray, and, and God does signs and wonders that put his seal of approval on their witness. And so, God, would you do signs and wonders in our midst to put your seal of approval on our imperfect efforts to proclaim your good news? Let me ask you, this is a little thought exercise. What is the difference between, and we're finishing up here, what is the difference between taking a long trip in a car and sitting in jail? And they're kind of the same thing, right? You're confined to a small place and you cannot go anywhere. Why does it feel so different? Because of the overarching plan behind it, right? In a car, you know you're going somewhere. You probably know where you're going. You got a nice cooler with refreshment there, right? And so you're able to stay confined in one place, and it doesn't bother you. Of course, when you're in jail, it's a whole different thing, right? See... The framework of what's actually happening on a larger scale has a massive impact on how you conceive of what's going on in this moment. That's the point I'm trying to make, however lamely. And that's the point that's being made in this text, that the larger framework of what God is doing, his sovereign plan revealed in Psalm 2, 
confirmed by the Holy Spirit, affirmed by signs and wonders, is the framework out of which you conceive of this moment. And without that framework, this moment seems like a prison. But with that framework, it looks completely different. That's what God does. And without that, there's no way I can embrace the image of a sacrificing Jesus Christ and say, that's what I want to be. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Only God can do that work in me. And there is a, a, a part of me that's just waiting for him to do it all the more. Because I, I, I need it. If I'm going to be bold and continue to be bold for the next 14 years, I need God to do that in me. We need God to do that in us. So after Katerina Zell writes what she writes, she ends with this. She talks about all how she's crushed. So many crosses have been laid on her and afflictions. Her strength is crushed. She said, Indeed, if God did not take me into his sanctuary to look on the purpose of it all, I could not bear it. But by his grace, I will, I hope, with him, leap over the walls. Which is a quote from Psalm 18, my favorite psalm probably, and Psalm 73, where David says, you know, by my Lord, I leap over the wall. It's the only way we're going to leap over the wall. It's by the outpouring of God's Spirit upon His people. The reframing of our minds, the renewing of our minds to see with the overarching framework of God's redemptive plan so that we can understand our small place in that. So God, would you pour out your spirit? Would you shake this church? Shake it. Would you grant that we might continue to speak your word with boldness? And actually that we, we might get better at it more effective, that it might become more part of our lives, that we might see more lame people leaping up and dancing because the word of God has entered in and done its work in the name of Christ. of all the things that we could set our minds on and set as our purpose, it is this, the continued proclamation of the word, the affirming of it by 
signs and wonders, the outpouring of your spirit that you have called us to. And what you call us to, you arrange and provide and sustain us for. So have your way, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.